continuing series of John. Um, but before, before we go on, what I want to do is I want to take a step back for a moment. Because often what we do when we start talking, like, hey, let's, let's see what the author is saying. Like, what is going on? Like, what is happening in this passage? Let's dive in. But before that, when we do that, we often forget why this passage is in front of us in the first place. We, we so dive into wanting to know what it is, but why is it that John has not only written this passage, but this whole thing? Why of all of the things that, John, that Jesus did, at the end of John's book, he literally says, Jesus did so much that there's not enough books in all of the library to be able to hold all that Jesus accomplished. Now, they didn't have libraries like we have today, but just imagine thousands of books. And John's like, yeah, that's only a glimpse of what Jesus did. And yet here we have a very, I mean, long in the day, but 21 chapters of John very, very, very intentionally writing all these stories. Why did he give us this story? Why not the other ones? Why did he choose to do this? Why did he write it? Was he a journalist that was trying to give him the most orderly account possible? Was This is an orderly account, but that's not why he was doing it. The nice thing is he tells us. He tells us why this story is written to us. Why we have this in holy writ, as some traditions say. It's in John chapter 20, and it says this. Now Jesus did many other signs. What's the word? Signs. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I mean, this is his thesis statement. This is his, this is usually in a five-paragraph essay, it's the last sentence of the first paragraph in middle school and high school. I didn't get much further than that, but, okay? So, he wants you to believe. He's not just some random person writing random things about this this person that happened. John is very intentional. He's, he's, he has motive in writing this. And it, it's so that you would believe. And believe in what? That he's the Savior, he's the Son of God, and that he wants you to have full life. I mean, think about that. John's giving us this story so that we would receive life and walk in life. Not our culture is materialistic in that way, which means more fun, more money, more stuff. That's not what he's saying here. But that we would walk in the way that the world was designed to be, and we would be the people that God designed us to be. Now, up to this point, we've seen a lot of different people wrestling with belief. Where up to this point have we seen people wrestling with belief? Think of all the stories of the Gospel of John thus far. The various people so we have lots of healings. Yeah, what was that? Nicodemus. Yeah, so John chapter 3, the famous story where we get for God so loved the world. Nicodemus is wrestling with, like, 
what you say this, but how, like, what does it mean to be born from above as we talked about? Not born again, but born from above. I can't climb up into my mother's womb. Like he's wrestling with belief. Somebody else said something. No? The woman at the well. The woman at the well. Like she, I'm, you're a prophet. She's telling the story of, or he's telling her her story. You move on to chapter five, that's chapter three, that's chapter four, chapter five, the man who's healed on Sabbath, seeing the connection, and what happens to him though? How does he respond and believe? He gets healed, but does anybody remember what he does right after he gets healed? He goes and tattles on the Pharisees. He tattles on Jesus to the Pharisees. And then this man has no more interaction with Jesus. There's, there's no follow-up. He's healed, but there's nothing that happens as a result. All these stories are about people making a decision. And I would say today's passage, when it comes about ma- placing belief, this may be one of the most important of all the books. Now, when, within this passage is a phrase that we've already said that's become just common language in our day. I was blind, but now I see. Like, you could ask people, you could start that statement, and people would be able to respond. And, and then you, I actually Googled, I was like, I just put the words in there, and at the bottom of it, it says, who first said I was blind, but now I see? It's like people are actually Googling who said this originally because it's so, so common. But it was also common for the early church. This was a passage that the, they used this man's language as a template before people were baptized. So in the church calendar, when people were about to be baptized, they would go to John chapter 9 and they would respond by saying, Lord, I believe, verse, 20, or verse 38. Then they would baptize him and then they would do what this man did. They would worship him. So this is a really in, in, like important passage. And I bring up chapter 5 because there's a direct connection. That man was in opposition to what we see in John chapter 9 with this man. The man who was healed in chapter 5 tattled on Jesus to the Pharisees. But this man, we see, responds in belief and faith. But this, this chapter is also connected to chapter 8 because in chapter 8, Jesus says one of his I am statements. And he says, I am what? The light of the world. I am the light of the world. That's when Jeff, a couple weeks ago, got to tell us about all the stories of Sierra Leone and all of how God is the light of the world in Sierra Leone. But this, if that passage tells us that Jesus is the light of the world, this passage shows us that Jesus is the light of the world. Because think about it. Blind man is what? Darkness. Spiritual blindness is language for what? Unbelief. Not knowing. Not seeing. Bringing a man to being healed, his sight being restored. It's a picture of light. This is him putting it into action. But it also connects directly to what we saw during Easter and the raising of Lazarus. So in this passage, John chapter 9, verse 3, it said... So Jesus is asked the question, hey, why is it, who sinned? 
And it says, it's not this man's sin or his parents, but notice the last part, that the work of God may be displayed in him. This man's suffering was more than their easy answer to their suffering. But notice what it says in John chapter 11. It, being asked to say, Jesus responding to why Lazarus died, verse 4 and verse 15. It says, it is for the glory of God. Why, was La- why did Lazarus die? It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. In both of these passages, Jesus is interacting with something that's wrong in the world. People are not supposed to die. There's something wrong with death. We talked about that on Easter. That death is just, it's just wrong in and of itself. But there's also blindness. There's just something wrong with that. I mean, have you ever been asked the question, if you were to lose one of your senses, which one would you lose? I mean, think about that for a second. If you were to lose hearing, sight, taste, touch, smell, glad I remembered all five. Which one would you voluntarily choose to lose? I'm like, none. Next question. I'll fail that test. I don't. But this guy, I mean, so here he is. This is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus does something again about suffering that I don't want us to miss in this. Because what he's doing, he's challenging the natural and normal ways in which people interact with and believe about suffering. And he's inviting them into belief about him that completely changes how we are to suffer. What it means to have pain and difficulty in this world. So how do people naturally in our day and in this passage interact with pain and difficulty? They're typically not, oh, this is for God's good. They may get there, hopefully, and we'll talk about that. But how do they start with it? I think the first way that people do it is that they assign fault. And this is what happens the first thing in this passage. This man was born blind. And what does it say in verse 2 about from his disciples? They question the situation that reveals their belief about the t- what type of suffering is happening. So what does he say? In ver- they say in verse 2, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In essence, what they're asking is, whose fault is this? Who, who did something wrong that caused this specific thing to take place. This is the first way that people deal with suffering and pain in the world, is assigning fault. If it wasn't from birth, I mean, notice how they constantly say this man was blind from birth. He didn't just get a disease. He was blind from birth. So why do the disciples then ask, not just, hey, did this guy sin? But obviously, if it's from birth, so, quote, unquote, the parents must have sinned. So it's their fault. And it's really interesting that the parents show up in this passage too. And what do they say? He's of age. So here they are trying to assign fault, looking for people or something to create a direct line between the suffering they experience and the sin. For instance, you sinned, therefore you suffer. 
or vice versa. You are suffering, therefore you must have sinned in a specific way. So let me be clear. I believe all suffering and all pain and all death go directly back to the original sin of Adam and Eve. So you could say sin caused suffering. But I'm going to use capital S, sin. Because that welcomed in the brokenness and the pain and the sorrow and the death. So in some ways, all suffering is a result of sin, capital S. But when we're assigning fault to suffering, we think it's somebody's lowercase s that caused that specific suffering. Who's at fault? Who's to blame? We've seen this very thing in the garden, right? Adam and Eve. When they experience shame, they experience suffering for the first time, what do they do? They look for somebody to blame. They look to, they assign fault. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. It wasn't me, it was the serpent that tricked me, right? We look to assign fault. When there's an injustice in the world, somebody has to be blamed, right? Think about times that you've experienced pain, suffering, difficulty in life. Maybe it was your marriage. Did you immediately jump to look for someone to blame? When you think of areas of your life that don't, don't line up with your dreams and desires, do you harbor in your heart blame towards another person? Because what does that end up producing in our lives? It's not the life that Jesus promised. It tends to lead to bitterness. Not always, not in every case. And you start harboring bitterness in your heart. Because if it's their fault that this happened in my life, then the way that I'm going to pay them and justice is going to be served is by being bitter towards them. And what does Ephesians 4.31 say? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you along with all malice. We want to assign blame. Suffering in the world, pain, it's your fault. And sometimes it is somebody's fault. Sometimes people do something to you that is sinful, that is wrong. So I'm not saying that doesn't happen. That absolutely happens. You're abused, you're violated. That is a direct line. But it's not the sin in your life that caused them to do that to you. Does that make sense? Like I've done something wrong because something's been done wrong to me. That's not what this is teaching us. There's another way that we can handle suffering. So we, some people assign fault. Another way that people, when they experience suffering, is that they try to fix the problem. Fix the problem. At one point, there is a Jesuit novice, Jesuit priest named Kevin. During the Jesuit novice stage, um, these people, they participate in a number of different assignments. These, uh, St. Ignatius called these experiments. So one of the experiments took place at the large community, which was composed of adults with special needs, mental and physical disabilities, and these adults chose to live together. 
But assistants also lived and participated in these communities to help with the daily activities that the individuals might not be able to perform on their own. So in, in the case of physical disabilities, the assistants would help clothe them, bathe them, change them, feed them. So Kevin was assigned to be a primary caregiver of a, ma a man named Lionel. Kevin had a great desire to be the best Jesuit priest ever. Something that I would probably do if I was in that, those shoes. And he wanted to prove to his director how capable he was. So he jumped into this opportunity with high hopes and youthful determination. So listen to his words from this experience. And this is from a book um, called uh, Invitation to Retreat. This is what it says. Lionel is a 34-year-old man who can't speak or feed or bathe himself. And he's confined to a wheelchair. In his frustration to express himself and connect with others, he often hits himself in the face. It was very difficult spending the day with him. Remember, these are Kevin's words. Every day presented new challenges for both of us. I would go crazy, as would Lionel, trying to communicate in broken French as he would scream out of total frustration and hit himself. I would struggle to bathe and feed him in a way he liked, and he would scream and hit himself. Long story short, we both grew increasingly impatient with each other as we searched to find what the other wanted or was trying to say. I remember one morning as I was giving Lionel a bath, I managed to nick his chin while shaving. By that point in the bath routine, as per usual, I was soaking wet from being repeatedly splashed and was standing in a small pool of water that had formed on the floor. And Lionel was screaming and had moved from hitting himself to trying to hit me with absolute just cause. This was a soul-searching moment for both of us. The only added feature this particular morning was the hemorrhaging of blood from his chin. In the midst of all this, there was a knock on the door, and the community leader, a lovely woman named Annette, who had lived in Le Arch for over 30 years, came in. And observing the water, the tears, and the blood, asked, is everything okay? <laughs> I turned to Lionel, who had a familiar face look on his face, which seemed to say, get him the out of here. But wanting to be the perfect Jesuit, I said, absolutely, everything is fine. Annette, however, suggested I take a break and she would finish things up. After sufficient recovery time, Annette came to, and sat with me and said, you know, as much as you may want to, you can't fix Lionel. God made him the way he is for a reason. And in her wisdom said, it may be to help people like you and me. So you and I may be like Kevin. There's a problem to be solved. There's a, there's a way in which I can fix the suffering and difficulty and pain. You and I feel like we can buckle up our bootstraps and dive in headfirst to fix the problem. Maybe you're like me and you're so ambitious you think you can fix the world sometimes. And then you get going and realize that you're taking on something that only Jesus can do. And maybe even working against what Jesus is doing. 
Because what did Jesus say in this passage? So that God's glory would be revealed. We think God's glory is often only revealed when things go right. When there's, maybe I'm speaking for myself, I won't project onto you. But when things are going right, when there's success, when things are what we want them to be, that's when God is most glorified. But what does this passage teach us? That God's actually glorified, yes, in the healing of this man. But this man had to experience a lot of suffering along the way in order to get to that place. Yes, that ultimately is. And that will be true of all of us. There will be no sin, sickness, pain, and death, right? The suffering will be gone. So all of that one day will fully reveal God's glory, and that will be magnificent. But we're not at that point yet. We're sitting in this place. The, the place before the man was healed from Jesus. So Jesus is often up to more. He wants God's glory to be revealed. While we want someone to blame or a problem to fix, the third approach that I think Jesus is inviting us into is to have faith in redemption. That God is actually using this, whatever the pain, difficulty, and suffering is, He's actually redeeming that very thing. Andreas Kostenberger, one of the commentaries, a great commenter on the Gospel of John, he says this, In this, Jesus models an approach to suffering by Christians, both in their own lives and the lives of others. That holds abeyance, the word I had to look up means suspended, suspended speculation regarding the causes of a given infliction, and instead, listen to this, by faith, beliefs that this affliction can come to, uh, came to that somehow God would receive glory through it. Do you believe that all of life is really about God getting glory? Even in the midst of our pains, difficulties, and sufferings. I don't like this talk, by the way. I'm like, I, give me like foo-foo and unicorns. This one's tough. Because I'm like, no, I want the good stuff. I don't, I don't like the pain and suffering part of this. Right? But there's a statement I've heard and I've put to memory to remind myself. And I, I, we'll put it on the screen. There's nothing that comes into my life that does not first pass through the loving hands of God my Father. I want to say that again. There's nothing that comes into my life that does not first pass through the loving hands of God my Father. Now, there's a lot in that statement. There's if we're talking in situations of abuse, there's pastoral, if I can for a moment, there's pastoral moments of abuse. And there's things like, well, what about this? And there's all these whatabouts that we want to. Well, where was God when? And all these things we want to bring into this because it's heavy. But I want to bring us back to this because this is what we need to remind ourselves. And it will help us allow for these moments to be redeemed. While God did not create the problem, he's not the author of the lies that led to the pain and the difficulty. He is the one who uses it for my good and his glory. God is at work to redeem me, to redeem and set free me free and you free in the midst of your suffering. 
And as he does that, we then join Jesus in the work of redeeming of the world. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 8. God uses the difficulty to shape me into the image of Jesus because that is what's good for us. To, not li- to live according to him, not according to the flesh. So Jesus, as the light of the world, Jesus redeems the brokenness of it. And he does it for our good, but ultimately for his glory. Are you a blamer or are you a fixer? How can God's redeeming work in the midst of the suffering of your life? This passage invites us to see, like in John chapter 11, in the midst of the difficulty, God's at work still. But this passage, like we've talked about, leads towards belief. This shows what happens when people are exposed to light. And there's two different responses in this passage. There's the man's, and then there's the Pharisee's. Accepting that he is the light of the world, what is the result that happened to that man? Not only is he healed like the man in John chapter 5, but something else happens as well. He worships him. Don't miss that. It's a big deal. He worships him. But then the Pharisees, they don't worship him. (laughs) Let's just say that. They don't. They reject him. Over and over again, Jesus continually offers life to them, continually keeps giving them opportunities, and he continually experiences rejection. Uh, Real quick, um, going back to what Justin was saying about the blessed rhythms. Um, I, I know most of us were here last week. And so that call is really for those in your missional communities. Like, hey, if there wasn't anybody there, I want to make it a high priority to get people there. Um, Because I really do believe that this can, if we are all intentional and those that are not present intentional as well. But I think one of the fears we have when it comes to this is the fear of rejection. Especially the share part. Like, what happens if I share and then they reject me? What happens if I put all this work in and care for these people and I'm living on mission and I'm including them in my life and I'm listening and I'm eating and I'm going and, and all this time and then I get to share my faith and then not only do they say no, there's this fear that I'm going to be out of, they're going to kick me out of their life. We're fr- this fear of rejection can kind of steep into why we aren't boldly professing our faith to a needy world. But what does Jesus keep doing? He keeps being faithful. And that's really hard in the midst of fear. Fear tends to, in my opinion, kind of become dominant over faithfulness in a lot of ways. It's, uh, it's easier to listen to the fears than to continue to be faithful. And what I want to draw us to is Jesus was rejected. But you know what? There were some people that didn't reject him. There were some people that were there. His disciples were there here. This man was born blind. And what does the man himself keep doing? 
I, guys, I was the man that was blind. Like, that popped out to me. It's like, he kept on telling them, it says, I was that guy. And then what does he end up say, saying? You know, I don't know about all this stuff. But I was blind, but now I see. I can't answer all the questions. I, there's no Braille. I, I couldn't read the text. I couldn't, I don't know the Pentateuch. I wasn't taught by the best of the best rabbis. But this is what I do know. I was experiencing suffering. I had this difficulty in my life. And God redeemed it. And now this is what I do know. Not look at me, now I can see. This is what we talk about Jesus being the hero of our story. This is how God has redeemed and is redeeming me. This is how he continues to work in my life. We deal with rejection and fear of rejection, not by stopping doing what we are ought to be doing, but by continually going back to Jesus as the one who's redeeming the situation I'm in. People may reject you. They rejected him to the point of dying. I don't think at this point in history, at least in the next month, be a little generous. That's not going to happen. Hopefully it may take longer than a month, but I'm just saying. But we have opportunity to be like this man. I was blind, but now I see. What part of suffering is God, what pain and difficulty in your life is God in the process of redeeming? How were you blind, but now how can you see? Where were you in darkness, but now where are you being exposed to the light of the world? For sake of time, what I want to do is we're going to spend about seven or so minutes um, discussing this before we go and take communion and sing together. Um, there's a couple questions uh, that I, just to... Uh, the first one is self-reflection. When you experience difficulty or suffering, do you just tend to assign fault? Do you fix the problem or do you have faith in God's redeeming power? Which is your natural go-to? Which, what do you see if you look back in your life that that's your tendency? The second question is, how do you react to that statement? There's nothing that comes into my life that does not first pass through the loving hands of God the Father, or God my Father. What does that produce in you? What, what comes up in, in that? Go ahead and discuss that around your table for a minute, and then I'm going to draw us up in about six minutes, and we'll take communion and then finish our time in singing.